Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when people talk about how it came to pass that Donald Trump is the presidential nominee of a major political party and looking more and more like he could win, one group that often gets the blame is, well, us, the media. Has the press become the brilliant ally of democracy's gravedigger? Joining us to sort through this is the New Republic's Brian Boitler, host of the Primary Concerns podcast. Meanwhile, we return to the matter of Wells Fargo Bank, who face huge fines for having feathered their bottom line on the backs of a massive scam perpetrated against their customers. This week, Wells Fargo head John Stumpf was called before Congress to answer for his bank's many malfeasances. And while there were the expected angry pyrotechnics from Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and rightly so, there were also helpless shrugs from other parties. We're joined by Slate columnist Helene Ol to discuss this matter. Finally, are we headed toward yet another government shutdown? Well, probably not. Hopefully not. But once again, Congress has run up against the deadline to pass another continuing resolution to fund their own operations, and they are leaving it very, very late. To help us get sorted on where the fault lines are, we're joined by our pal, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. Here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Guess what? So that happened, your weekly podcast about politics and the fudge trench we're all swimming through on the way to oblivion is back. Thank you for being here. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press, and I'm joined, as always, by these two dorks, Arthur Delaney. Hey. Hey, Arthur. That was really disgusting. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Zach Carter is also here. If, if it was actual fudge in the trench, though, that would be great. I now now I we've, said, got, we've all got the giggles now. <laughs> I didn't say it, it, it is actual fudge. We are at that. We're at like the fudgery. Yeah, what did you think it was? Uh, North Carolina. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Come on. You know, don't you deny it, supply it. Uh-huh. Um, so, guys, guys, we've really gotten off to a really roaring start here. Uh, but I feel like it's anything we can do to maintain our sort of punch drunk, happy attitude in this crazy election of ours. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I feel like you, you sort of get to the point where you, you you just are looking for reasons to distract yourself from the constant pain and misery of what is going on. Uh, Donald Trump is not winning right now, wow. but he is more popular than he was two weeks ago. Yep. And it is not because... Uh, the, the media has failed to do its job. Uh, it is not because people are uninformed that he is a liar and a flip-flopper and a white nationalist who spreads neo-Nazi propaganda on Twitter. People actually know that. and They, they don't, like it. And they don't care. They like it anyway. And yeah. that sucks. And what's happening now is we are at the point that we're envisioning the Trump transition, if it happens. You know, which things can he do immediately through executive order? Right. Uh, How quickly can his deportation force round up 11 million people? You know, how how much would the beds cost that you need in the deportation centers? How many trucks? Right. It's serious. Yeah. He's not winning, though. I mean, he's still losing, according to... (laughs) 
I, I, th- I think polls. he. Will, I think it's pretty clear he will, he is losing, and he will. And I believe he wow. will still lose. But it is remarkable how close the election has become. I am become. surrounded by optimists. Well, there's a debate. I do not feel the same way as you guys. Debate's coming up, and that's going to completely well, change the tenor uh, of what's happening. Let's talk about that because. Uh, obviously, the the stage has been set for the first presidential debate, which we'll remind everyone is on the 26th of September at Hofstra University in Hampstead, New York. Monday. Yeah. Well, join us for coverage all night at the Huffington Post. Please. We need your money. Um, but uh, the stage has been set. And I wonder if the sort of levels of expectations, this is the kind of this kind of like weird trade term for, you know, political, you know, what what we expect uh, uh, these candidates to do and, and the bar they have to clear aren't a little bit out of whack. See, to my mind, uh, Hillary Clinton, who I've said previously, I find to be a very good debater, very competent debater. And I think it's great whenever she's apart from her handlers and just in an empty space where she can think and talk. Uh, it's quite good. Um, and I think that She'll demonstrate competence and knowledge, a, a strong knowledge base, and uh, you know, present herself as someone who is one of those few Americans who you can think of sitting in the White House. And I think that Donald Trump may at best manage to not, you know, fall down on his face. However, I feel that if Hillary Clinton clears the bar, everyone expects her to clear. We'll kind of be like, not we, but the media will kind of be like, Meh, okay, that's cool. And if and if uh, and if Donald Trump manages to, you know, literally not shit his pants, people are going to be like, "Whoa, oh, that was presidential." Did you see that? Yep, I think that's what happened. Did you see happen. that? He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't. He didn't rile up any any anti semites in the, for for ninety minutes. It was extraordinary what I just saw happen. He could do this, and I. But think you know what? He might. He might. He weird. might rile up anti semites anyway, and <laughs> and then people will talk about right. how it was bad that he did but that. I feel like, and then it won't matter. Because... I feel like we're going into this debate with our machines kind of weirdly calibrated right now. Oh wait a minute! In the Republican debates, did he deliver any performances that were like? really sober compared to the others or was he pretty consistently slinging insults and being weird uh, he was yes. consistently singing insults and being weird yeah. and i think that was a factor of the fact that he got to share the stage with a bunch of clowns and that really helped him i think that there was an initial push on trump's part to try to get more people up there on that stage get gary johnson and joel stein up there on that stage he kind of dropped that early on when he saw that this commission for presidential debates weren't going to go for big role change. But I think there's this sort of seed in Donald Trump that knows he's better off when there's, when there's more than just one person out there interacting. Even with. though he constantly complained that there were too many people. Of course, of course that, that, that doesn't matter. Of course he complained about that. I, That's I just think he's going to disingenuous. No, I think he's going to come out and be weird. And it's not going to work to his advantage against Hillary Clinton, who's, so who's better in debates than in any she, other mode she, she only of the has campaign. T- she, has, she had two weaknesses in debates during the Democratic primary. One was the Gold, Goldman Sachs speeches, and she had a weak response for that because there's just no real good answer. The only thing you can really say is, I took this money and it was politically stupid and I did it because I wanted more money. And that, that shows like bad politicking and being kind of greedy. Correct. And the other one was on, uh, on foreign policy. She has a much better grounding in foreign policy than Bernie Sanders did. Um, but Democrats generally don't like her foreign policy. So Correct. she was constantly stuck in like, oh, uh, you know, I, I like Henry Kissinger and I'm getting beat up for that now. She's not going to get beat up for the foreign policy stuff in a debate with Donald Trump. That's not going to matter. She's going to be the hawk. Yeah. Like that's her role. 
And and Donald Trump may, may try to be like, you know, I voted against the Iraq war and your Libya thing, and she'll have a chance to call him out. So th- that foreign policy thing is fine. The Trump's only way to like actually win on the merits, I think, is by going after her uh, for for you know the Goldman Sachs thing, essentially for for the Clinton Foundation, looking looking for uh, uh, genuine lines of attack that the Clintons are old and corrupt and part of the establishment. I think those are legitimate lines of of attack that he could, that he could take, and I think he will try to do that. I think she's got to have some kind of answer ready for that. I mean, the Clinton Foundation stuff, Democrats have been defending this for like three months now. Um, I, I don't think it's going to I, I don't think it's going to be a bad night for her. I think she's going to be able to handle it. She's also not going to have an opponent like she did in the primaries who's willing to just say on the debate stage, I don't want to talk about this issue with Hillary Clinton because I'm, I'm bored with it, too. You know, right. Donald Trump is going to be very excited to talk about anything that pertains to her past, her previous hints of scandal or corruption. He's going to come out and say he was against the Iraq war. Is he is he going to be off that talking point finally? I, or, or will Hillary Clinton be like thanking Matt Lauer for not calling him on it? I have this golden opportunity because she'll be the first one to really do it. I, it's I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Sure. Sure. That could that could come up. Um, I you would you would hope that a moderator would be able to say actually you're lying, but I know that I know that that has, that's what hasn't happened. Say, but say even, but even if that happens, remember that, that. that it will serve to reinforce the thing that everybody already knows, which is that Hillary Clinton also supported the Iraq Correct. War. When it yes, yeah. So and so and so then then you end up still having. I think that this, the problem with Donald Trump's candidacy is that. Not only does he appeal to a lot of people who have like really actually awful views about the world, but even when you catch him being terrible and crappy, the fact that he's going up against somebody who who really has been in the, the public eye for like 30 years and part of the political establishment for 30 years in the United States, people who are really angry about that just don't care. They don't care that if he's a liar. They don't care when he flip flops. They don't. They just don't care. They're like, oh, well, whatever. Everything sucks. So let's just blow it up. Yeah. Well, and I think that's. I think I. I still think we're going to survive this one. I don't think we're going to be in a fascist dystopia in six months. But, uh, man, Democrats really picked the wrong year to name somebody who'd been around for 35 years. Yeah, definitely true. Nominee. Definitely true. No getting around that. But this is the cake we're, we've been served. You you think that Donald Trump will be weird? Yeah, he'll uh, be weird. I think that that's a bit out of step with his past few weeks of campaigning. There's, there's no teleprompter at the debate. He's been using a teleprompter. But he's been given, he's going to be coached by Kellyanne Conway and Roger Ailes. They will probably try to install a level of professionalism. I think Hillary Clinton will be able to bump him off that. All right, well, I guess all we have to do is wait and watch the he, debate. She's going to have personal attacks too, right? Like he the gets Trump angry. Foundation, the Trump Foundation is a big scam, okay? There's been great reporting about sure, how sure, it's sure. a total fraud. She'll she'll be able to like come back with that. It's going to be interesting to see which Donald Trump shows up, the weird one or the professional one, and which Donald Trump Hillary Clinton is best prepared to face because one good thing you could do in debate is show up as someone you weren't expecting. So it's going a lot. There's uh, so much writing on this, like the tip into fascist dystopia. But all we can do is wait and watch. The debate is September 26th. Uh, you can watch it on television. You can also should follow on your second screen, the Huffington Post. We'll have coverage all night. We have a great show, which we're now going to get to now that we finished talking about 2016. So please stick around. It's fun. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We're back. We're back in the studio with our good friend Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us by phone, one of this podcast's best friends. He is a Republican congressman from Wisconsin, and he is going to be retiring very, very soon. And he is so lucky to be retiring very, very soon. But before he goes, there's still a lot to deal with. And we're going to talk about all the things he's dealing with on his way out the door. Please welcome Congressman Reed Ribble. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. It's so exciting to be with you, too. So for old Lang Syne, it looks like we have the threat of a government shutdown. No. I mean, I, well, okay. I should say this is always a threat of a government shutdown when, when the government, meaning Congress, doesn't do its appropriations uh, in regular order and move them there's 12 of them that we were supposed to move through the system this year. And that hasn't happened for six years. Yeah, it hasn't happened for six years. It actually hasn't happened on time for 42 years. <laughs> right, so okay. It's, a, it's actually worse than that. And I have legislation that's intended to fix this whole thing that more than half the Congress wants, but uh, we haven't been able to get it to the floor yet. Hopefully, uh, in the lame duck, we can move that legislation and maybe fix this before the next year. Wow, you're going to stick around to the bitter end on this one. Um, this, this is the uh, the, by, the every two years budget bill instead of every year. So at the end of the month of September, that's when funding to run government operations is out. And then we have a bare bones government. And it looks like there are a few things that are a political problem right now. There's the funding for water infrastructure inspired by Flint, where they, you know, they're still drinking out of bottled water. And there's Zika funding, and there's the Export-Import Bank, and this thing about Internet domain names. How, how insurmountable are these obstacles? Well, you know, some are, some are insurmountable for the left and some are insurmountable for the right. But I think ultimately, because this is just a 90-day package, not even 90 days anymore, but just a funding mechanism to uh, take us through December 9th or to December 9th, uh, where the I think the major uh, debates will take place. Um, the, this is going to get done. It'll get done next week. There, I, I don't believe there'll be a government shutdown, but I do think people are going to fight this tooth and nail right to the end, and then they're going to vote for something. And so we can kind of take these down one at a time. Uh, on the on the internet domain names, basically the president's floated an idea to turn that over to an international body. Uh, that's now pretty much all managed here in the U.S., uh, that's not going to happen. There's, there's zero chance that Republicans in the House or Senate will support it. Yeah. So, so that one, that one is uh, – Senator Cruz has just been adamant in the Senate. Is this just a sovereignty issue? 
It is, and, yeah. and quite frankly, uh, it, it's a free, uh, it's a free speech and an open internet issue. We we have a hard and fast commitment in the United States, and have had since the very foundings of our country about free speech. And uh, the internet is the freest of free places right now. And so, um, conservatives for sure, but also many many Democrats are going to push back on anything that would turn over that authority to international bodies rather than the United States. Now, it just isn't going to happen. There's Everyone says they want a little extra funding to, to help the government fight the Zika threat, which is in Miami right now. What's the holdup with that? It looks like there's some stuff about condoms and fetal tissue. Well, not, not really. There is some stuff, there is some stuff on, on the abortion uh, issue, whereby in the original language, uh, in the, in the, on the island of Puerto Rico, um, they didn't spell out that two Planned Parenthood clinics uh, would be uh, getting the funding. They, they directed all the funding to community health centers in Puerto Rico, and so Democrats went crazy and they said, "You're trying to you're trying to you know prevent women from getting health care, which is totally untrue. The money is the same; it's just being redirected through community health clinics, where there's a broader disbursement of health care on the island." than those two places that Democrats absolutely hold on to. And the thing, and listen, I'm a pro-life guy, and everybody knows it. Um, uh, it, just, it just strikes me as odd that, to, that Democrats would hold up Zika funding uh, for a, a place that is known to do abortions. They're, they were so strongly to hold on to the right of that that they would, they would stop funding for all these women who want to save their babies from any type it, of health effects. It's just bizarre. But, Congressman Reed Ribble, it's not just abortions. Zika is sexually transmitted for, you know, a really long period after a person can be in, uh, infected with it. And care clinics offer, most healthcare clinics offer contraceptive advice and uh, services to women. So that's not the issue. The um, what about what's going on with the water issue? Uh, because there is a connection that's being made between um, Flint, Michigan, and uh, Louisiana, and that seems to be an odd, odd sticking point. Yeah, well, what what they're trying to do is those those folks that would support a federalist position, whereby uh, what I mean by that is whereby the federal government would jump into a local issue, uh, like on a utility in Flint. They're hoping that they can that they can join or lock arms with with Republicans who typically oppose that, uh, but they would lock arms with Republicans in the South who feel that uh, uh, storm damage relief should be added to this, and that's why they're hoping to get both of them in there. Republicans generally would oppose uh, funding on Flint, and here's the reason: they would say, "Well, why why would you take somebody in uh, Oklahoma City that's maybe been paying?" extra on their water bill every month for years to pre-plan to replace the, the underground piping uh, and now make them pay double because the folks in Michigan didn't pre-plan. Well, that's... And, and that, that, that's, the, that's the basic underlying principle here, um, and I think that that's where the sticking point is. And so they want to attach it to the flood relief uh, in uh, Louisiana. But Senate Democrats, when they crafted this Flint package, had to, they've already... Uh, hatched it with Republicans in the Senate who had the same Federalist concern. You know, we don't want to jump into this. We can help Flint not by giving them money directly, uh, but there, you know, there is some of that, but also by plowing the money into the state revolving funds and other 
national water infrastructure programs that Flint and any other city could be eligible for. So how is it still a federalist concern, federalist in the sense that it, you know, it, it's a local problem, not a federal one? What, what, what most of my colleagues would say under that argument is that this vehicle, the continuing resolution, which only lasts 60-some days or 70 days or so, is not the vehicle to deal with broader water issues. The, the Water uh, uh, Resource Development Act, WARDA, is a better place for that uh, than the CR so that it could be a, a real uh, program where the money can be distributed nationally as needed. And, and the House is voting on WARDA next week, so you're saying do it, do it next and week. And so we feel that the better place, if you're going to do something on Flint, it should be there not in the CR. I have a question that's not related to the CR, but it is related to con- uh, Congress's business. It's something that y- you're probably going to have to make a decision on. Um, the um, Obama administration is planning on vetoing uh, a bill, the VASTA, the v- Victims of State-Sponsored Terrorism Act, uh, a bill that would allow plaintiffs in the United States to sue nations that could be provably connected to acts of terrorism. Obviously, Yes, yeah. Obviously, that would include Saudi Arabia. Now, the way uh, it's been sort of popularly depicted in the media, what's going to happen is that the Congress has very quickly come together and override this veto. Um, I'm interested in knowing if it's actually a, a, a judgment that's been made so quickly by members of Congress, because it, it see, the contours of the issue involve sentiment, but it also involves uh, sovereignty. The Obama administration argues that this in, this in, this uh, this does damage to national sovereignty. At the same time, they're trying to pass a TPP trade bill that would that would erode sovereignty. But what what is what is Congress's think since since we can talk about this in terms of like it seems like congress is going to swiftly come together how long did they wrestle with this problem because there's some big philosophical things yeah well they've, they've wrestled with it much longer than what what the press has covered it as and and what you've also seen is pretty broad bipartisan support that there is there is a total likelihood of the the president's veto being overridden we're not 100% certain he's going to veto it because that also puts him at risk because he would have many Democrats here going into the fall voting to override the president's veto. And he only has 10 days, and so the clock is ticking here as to whether or not he actually pulls out the pen and sends it back to us. And, and so, sure, there are those issues, but there are also the key issues of the rights of Americans to over 2,000 of them, 2,000 families impacted by it, that now that with with additional evidence that had been classified that is now unclassified, they get to see who all were the players in this, and they want to have the right to be able to respond to those 2,000-plus families uh, of the victims on 9-11. And so uh, this passed with broad bipartisan support in both chambers of the Congress, yeah. and I'm not 100% certain that the president will, in fact, veto it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that would be... That's a that's a bold prediction. Maybe not so bold. Maybe not he so bold. He said he wasn't so sure. No, that I often make oh. wrong predictions. <laughs> so we'll just have to wait and see. Well, well, one last question. While we're on the topic of predictions, I'm not going to make <laughs> you predict. But uh, what do you think about the presidential election we've been having? Yeah, how do you like that? <laughs> well, you know, it, I I think I'm like a lot of Americans who 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 feel disillusioned uh, by our choices on both sides of the uh, the, the political spectrum. Uh, we have two candidates in, in Secretary Clinton and, and Donald Trump who, 
the American people have high unfavorable attitudes toward. Uh, they don't trust either of these candidates. And, and in my lifetime, it is the greatest conundrum as far as voting for the lesser of two evils that I can remember. And I think many Americans are, are dismayed and discouraged about it. Uh, they are kind of starting to fall into their normal red and blue jackets on this thing. Mm. And we're starting to see what, what is typical in these races. This race is starting to tighten up. And so um, Donald Trump had a, a few good weeks here, and uh, Secretary Clinton had a few bad ones. Uh, I, think, I think for the first time since maybe the Kennedy-Nixon uh, debate, that the, the, this first debate could have a real impact on uh, how how people's attitudes are and what they believe about these candidates, and so uh, stay tuned for next week. That is, oh a, yeah. So that is a bold prediction because political scientists often underrate the power of the debates. But there's the, the hell with yeah, them. There's we, yeah. To, well, this has been the to hell with political scientists election. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hate yeah. to say it. I hate to say it. By the way, I readily admit that I've been wrong about this thing from the very beginning. <laughs> Me too. Oh no, we have, we're we're all wrong. <laughs> yeah, we know. Yep, I'm as I'm as wrong as they come. What can I say? I got a lot. I got a lot to redeem myself on. Um, Congressman, thank you again for joining us. We look forward to you doing this a few more times, maybe before you leave. Reed Ribble, we'll hear from you, lame duck. Maybe a few more times after you leave, too. Uh, maybe. Be happy to. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We will be right back. And we're back, and we're here to do a little bit of navel-gazing, but hopefully not much. It's been a topic of great concern to many people who tweet me (laughs) that the media has done a rather poor job characterizing this election correctly. Their case is that we have one candidate who appears to be a normal candidate with normal flaws and normal concerns, and another one who's kind of a raging, egomaniacal, authoritative despot in waiting. Which one is which? Um, to find out, we're here with um, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us, we've very, we're very happy to have a special guest from the New Republic and the host of the Primary Concerns podcast, Brian Boitler. Hey, guys. All hey. right. So you know what you're doing? Yeah, you're giving oh. us a good... A good slurp. Yeah. That's good. We like we like the kinetic feel of sound, and, and <laughs> we want people to understand this. So, okay, uh, Brian, you've actually really kind of like sort of made a really good effort to take this issue on. And uh, people people Google Brian Boiler, go to his page, and, 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 and follow back last eight or ten pieces because there's a good mix uh, in, in which Brian really – you confront the whole – sort of conundrum the media's had this entire time. And I like the way you've not like fixated on some kind of unified field theorem, but are trying to puzzle it out. There's one thing that really stuck out with me reading your piece. Um, And it's this part. And I think, I think it was a little bit cynical, but also very true and maybe worrying. Will you talk about the media at the press and you described the press as a, uh, a media institution, but not a democratic institution. Right. Right. It's uh, so, the the idea in, in in that article was not to say that the media is, acts like a trade association and is, is they're no different than some two bit lobbyists trying to you know uh, 
in, increase their power at the expense of other institutions. It's just that the way political media is configured, the sort of strictures it adheres to in its reporting make it very difficult for the media to behave as a defender of all of the norms, all of the uh, democratic institutions that we you know, think are important to prevent authoritarianism from taking over. But they're, but they're very well equipped to push back on, um, on any sort of incremental infringement upon press freedom. Um, so when Hillary Clinton doesn't do press conferences or when Donald Trump, um, you know, has a reporter arrested or, or you know, any of the many number of, of press transgressions that have happened this election. Katie Turr has to go out from a rally under Secret Service Right. Protection. Like the, the press gets its backup and they know how to get its backup. They know how to kind of in their in their reporting and in, in their output advocate for their freedoms to be recognized. Right. For, for Clinton to have a press conference, for Donald Trump to. Uh, reckon with the fact that his campaign manager uh, battered a battered a reporter, um, but when Donald Trump uh, promises to do something that would uh, traduce a completely unrelated norm, um, the press doesn't have any way to convey that something like something bad has happened and it needs to be addressed uh, the way they do when it happens to their own sphere of influence. So Brian Boitler. When did this problem emerge? Has it been a problem with coverage of Trump from the beginning, or is it more apparent more recently? Well, I think that it's actually just a, a fact of media that you can, you, you can find episodes of this happening that have nothing to do with this election, right? I, one of one like one episode that that sticks with me really well is um, there's a Fox News national security correspondent named James Rosen, and it was revealed. I'm, I'm hoping I remember this right that he. That the Department of Justice had like a, a, a sealed indictment um, of him that they weren't intending to use to take him to court, but they needed it in order to get information on one of his sources that had leaked to him. Right. Yeah. Right. And when it became revealed that, that the Department of Justice had gone after a reporter this way, the White House press corps lost its mind. I mean, and I understand why one of their colleagues was, you know, uh, being investigated by the Department of Justice for doing his job. Um but every question at the press conference was about whether this was right, why they did it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the Department of Justice uses the same kind of bullying investigative practices to, to, to investigate Muslim communities in Michigan, and the press just does not care. Um, and and so, so there you see how, like, you know, on a neutral basis, those are, those are completely identical things, com- completely identical ways to go about – conducting law enforcement, but when it's directed at the press, the press cares. When it's directed at Muslim communities, they don't. And and so we've seen that happen we've seen that play out in the in the context of this campaign where the press treats Donald Trump's position on Muslim immigration different than his position on press freedom. Um, and so I, I only I only raised it in that article as a way to explain to liberals who were like, why can't the press convey to the public the the you know the multivariate threat Donald Trump poses to the democracy. It's because they're not they don't really have a language for doing it outside their own their own sphere of influence. That's kind of a staggering thing to admit, though, because I feel I don't feel like the public shares the notion that the that the media is primarily concerned with things outside of democracy. I think that they think of the media as the fourth estate. Right. They think of it as a bulwark mm-hmm. against threats to this democracy. Uh, and it's a staggering thing to have to tell them, no, 
that's really not what the the press is about. Um, and I, I feel like perhaps this is one of the reasons that the, the trust of the media and the press is at an all time low. Yeah, well, we're not all, getting we're not giving people what they expect from us. So I mean, look, it, it it I don't the reason I wanted to draw a distinction between the press actually acting like its own lobbying shop and the press just kind of having kind of a trade mentality when it comes to determining sure. what they think is important. Right? The reason they're pushing Hillary Clinton for press conferences in an idealized scenario. The reason they're pushing Donald Trump for access or punishing him for mistreating the press is because they want to serve that fourth estate role and report on what they learn about the candidates. And and access is an important part of that. So it's not that there's there's no democratic function that the press serves other than to protect its own sources of power. It's just that when they see aspects of the democracy that matter outside of First Amendment issues or outside of press freedom issues, they don't have the same in, inherent mechanisms required to, to to push back on that, like advocates. Right? They will not be advocates for um, for the for the Khan family in the same way that they'll be advocates for um, Katie Tour. Right. I don't know. It seems to me almost this whole time that the press has been as forceful in describing Donald Trump's positions on immigration as unconstitutional as they have in describing his press attacks in the same way. Like, I, I don't... W- do you have a quantifiable, or, or is this just an impression no, that you it's most No, it's mostly airy-fairy, but I mean, I mean it, but if you think about it, it, it's not that the press is un- incapable of saying this is extreme, this is unusual, and this has happened, obviously. Like, I'm not... My, my point, I, I hope I haven't conveyed in my articles that I think that there's been no coverage of Donald Trump that gets to the core of who he is. It's just that when, if, if, like currently he's gone 60 or something days without a press conference and you're starting to get a drumbeat, right? Mm -hmm. About like, you know, the same way they did for Hillary Clinton when she went 200 or whatever. Um, What you're not seeing is it's been 100 days since Donald Trump um, proposed banning Muslim immigration and he hasn't walked it back. He continues to Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Because he keeps doing a new outrageous thing. Yeah, so so it's not that it's not out there that that Trump proposed this and that that it, it that it, it runs afoul of the Constitution and of uh, years of tradition and norms, et cetera. That's it's out there. It's just the press doesn't have a way to home in on that and say, hey, this is a unique danger, and society needs to be aware aware of it the way they do when it's. When it's their own do you, shit. Do you remember when uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg basically said that, and then everyone in the press tutted her? I like, do remember that. You're not supposed to say that, Ruth Bader <laughs> I mean, Ginsburg. And, and yeah, I thought kinda, that was a turning point. You kind of addressed that with, with with the sort of the passel of Trump covers. There's one pot that's kind of like, can you believe he said that? And maybe it's, oh, shucks, that's crazy. Or maybe that's like air of concern. And then there are things like what happened last week when he essentially conned right. the press into attending a, an advertisement for his hotel uh, that you saw everyone flip their wig. Right. Uh, re- and real sarcasm and snark on CNN, who could have always just simply turned their camera off as soon as they knew they were being scammed. Right. Um, here's a question, though. Um, Donald Trump could get elected president. Indeed. And it seems to be pretty apparent that what he promises is some sort of new-to-America con- new style of authoritarian right. rule. At that juncture, how does the media continue to cover him straight? Uh, because at that point, it becomes very apparent that what's happening is not the norm because the norms will be so widely 
felt and being enacted. Right. Is the media as presently composed prepared or even capable of confronting authoritarianism? Uh, when we go when we go to the Olympics and the Parade of Nations is coming in and North Korea walks in, you know, Matt Lauer will say, oh, no, I've got problems in North Korea. But <laughs> they, they, they do. They, we're perfectly comfortable confronting authoritarianism outside the shores. But what happens when it comes here? Yeah, I, I, I actually discussed this very thing today in recording Primary Concerns, my podcast. What with, day was it again? It was just the day uh, this week. It was just a day this week. Yeah. Uh, this week's edition Wednesday. of your podcast. This week's edition of my podcast with uh, Slate's Jamel Bowie. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit less despairing about how he would be covered as a president than how he's covered by the campaign press corps as a candidate. Um, because I think that, at, you know, I, look, I think it would be horrible if he were elected. And I think that he would implement uh, policies that were uh, horrifying, illegal, unconstitutional um, plus, and, plus and, you would get audited. Yeah, I, I'd be in the brig. Um, and, and you know, some of those would just end up slipping under the radar and becoming normalized in some sense. But I, I think that if you were to win, you know, in the same way that there has been some retrospective, um, like introspective work done by people who covered George W. Bush's candidacy in 2000 to say we didn't really – handle our coverage of that election right and it had real consequences. I think that if Trump were to win, there would be a uh, sort of very strong line of thought that the media had helped enable his victory. Definitely. And, and that the media the media would be introspective about that fact. And that when the shit show of his administration uh, you know, found its sea legs and, you know, Corey Lewandowski was getting paid $500,000 by CNN while also being chief of staff and people were getting fired here and there. And they started deporting people willy nilly. And, and, you know, uh, people in Muslim communities just started disappearing down to Guantanamo because they were suspects. And like, I think that eventually, you know, the, 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 the press would figure out a way to cover this in a way that, that was like proportional, uh, to the alarming nature of the facts. But in the context of a campaign, it all just kind of gets lost, right? Because because there's like, you know, the, the press has like an app that it uses to calibrate uh, campaign coverage. And it's based on the idea that you have two roughly symmetrical candidates. And so in every headline, in every story or, or in, in every side by side, uh, that's how Trump is treated. And when he was president, I don't think the same thing would hold. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense because there's no Avignon presidency right. to be constantly comparing it to. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can completely see that. Of course, what, what you what the scenario just described describes a whole bunch of really searingly terrible things happening right. before uh, the press does anything to intercede, which is right. I mean, pretty bad. I like. I I could imagine a, 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 a Trump presidency being such a such a debacle that that none of his grand plans ever got anywhere close to implementation. I just mean that, you know, for, for a guy who has no idea how uh, the uh, federal bureaucracy works, right, who has no idea uh, what the checks and balances between the branches of government mean. Where his veto points will be. Exactly. Yeah. Or, 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 or other branches' veto points will be. Or, or what happens when his advisors say, you, you can't do that because it conflicts with this law or the Supreme Court precedent. Uh, when, he's, when, when he starts to just be like, screw those and, 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 and try to push ahead anyway, I think that, that that's when the press is going to be like, whoa, 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 this is, this is fucked. Um, there, there is this weird sense that Donald Trump hasn't yet realized that the president is someone who's subject to 24 hours of scrutiny and criticism, even when they're not a white supremacist, authoritarian right. despot. Right. I mean, I, I, I wrote a piece for— You may not have the stomach for it. I, I wrote a piece for the New Republic um, 
probably before the end of the primary called Trump the Disruptor. And it was envisioning like what – how would our democratic systems handle Trump if he were to be elected, right? And like the premise of the piece was that I don't think you're ever going to have to worry about that because the – institutions, while flawed, are strong enough to prevent him from becoming president. The, the, the whole point of our system is to prevent right. this kind right. of crap from really and, going and, down. And, and this is a huge test of it, and I'm still pretty confident he's not going to win. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it just kind of went through, like, if the, if the system's actually weak enough to let him through, is it strong enough to prevent him from really basically tearing the whole thing down? Um, at the You know, I argued at the time that, yes, I think so. Um, I I feel more and more sheepish about that piece uh, every time I see the polls narrow and narrow because I just don't want it to be tested uh, for for everyone's health and safety. Um, but you know I, I I think that the media in the in 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 the context of an election will be very different than the media in the context of a Trump presidency. I think that the Republican Party will also be different in the context of an election than they than they will with Trump being their standard bearer like serving as president um, and the courts will be unforgiving of him. The, you know, just there, there, there's so many bulwarks against him just having completely unbridled power um, that I, I, I don't worry about like, I still don't worry about like the end of American democracy or whatever, but it's a real threat. It's real. All right. Well, okay. oh, this is so, great news. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, everybody, oh, news, everybody, you know, checks and balances. <laughs> you know, we got this. <laughs> The, go read your, Federalist, read your Federalist papers. It's all in there. This is the whole point. <laughs> We're ready. It's been 200 years. It's it's game time. Hang on. Bring, it's, bring it's, it on. it's only 418 on some day that I'm not supposed to Don't, mention. Dear, right. dear yeah. listener, yeah. it's whatever yeah. day you're listening to this, that's what day it is. <laughs> all right. All. all right. So good good, good news, I guess. Um, uh, the, the, so the, the, the force that will arrest the object that's in fucked up motion is... Are our institutions? Our, our, yeah, our sclerotic, <clears throat> big, hulking, inertial institutions that just aren't easily pushed. What over. is this physics? It is really it is. a lot is of this? physics. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's thermodynamics, and it's awful. <laughs> All right, Brian Boitler, thank you for joining us. Brian, you can read him at the New Republican. You can listen to him speak on microphones in studios by uh, subscribing to Primary Concerns, his podcast. Brian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. And we will be right back. Bye. And we're back and um, joined in the studio by Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. Hey, Zach. And uh, we're very excited. We have a, a special guest uh, on the phone with us today. Uh, she is a Slate columnist and the co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be So Complicated. Please welcome to the show, Helene Olin. Hi. Thank you yeah. for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. So uh, we're talking Wells Fargo again today. In fact, there's been some developments in the Wells Fargo story, mainly a reaming that uh, Wells Fargo CEO uh, John Stumpf mm-hmm. uh, took on Capitol Hill, right? Yeah, yeah. He had uh, a hearing that was just uh, basically designed to be a, a sort of public roasting uh, <laughs> of, of of him by members of the Senate. Um, and the, the highest profile, I think, filleting was from Elizabeth Warren. And a lot of people have been expecting that to be pretty intense. And it was. She said he should resign and be criminally prosecuted. Uh, But Helene, 
what what did you what did you make of the uh, 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 of the event? Did, did you get the impression that there was actually some political momentum here to maybe do something about you know what happened at Wells Fargo? I, I wish I could tell you I, I got that impression, but you know if you stuck around for the second part, you really didn't because the fact of the matter is is the Republicans are still gunning for the CFPB, which is of course the entity that fined the uh, Wells Fargo the, the the vast majority of the 185 million dollar settlement, and. It's not clear what really can be done besides prosecutions at this point, right? And we don't know that that's going on. We know the Justice Department is looking into it, but I would be, I have to say, I would be really surprised if anything, you know, serious developed out of this, unfortunately. There was sort of a, a funny phenomenon I noticed at the hearing where people would, would just denounce John Stump and say, this is terrible. I mean, and just to, to recap, Wells Fargo created more than 2 million fake accounts for its own customers, um, costing a you know, total of millions of dollars. Um, this is obviously fraud and illegal, uh, so the they're in trouble for it. The term is sandbagging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, it, it's a pretty straightforward fraud that's easily understandable by the general public. So I think it's, um, you know, there's a reason why they're getting so much heat. But you had this, you, you would see the Republicans go after John Stump and then say, you know what? It's really a shame that our federal regulators at the CFPB didn't catch this sooner. And they made all of these statements afterwards to Amanda Turkle and I were covering this. You know, this, this is really the result of some crusading journalists. The, the federal regulators had nothing to do with it. Were you surprised to hear someone, Republicans effectively call for tougher bank regulation from federal overseers? As I said, I'll believe it when they actually introduce the legislation. <laughs> so um, I'm not exactly holding my breath. I think these things are very easy to say. I mean, I think, unfortunately, this seems to be, I think people are, let me say, I think people are absolutely outraged by this. But I think at the same time, you know, there needs to be, you know, some mass criminal responsibility taken here. I think Elizabeth Warren is right. And, you know, and you're seeing sort of on both sides of the aisle, you're seeing a little bit of that dissipate. You know, you're seeing some people on the left say, and this is not really at the hearing, I should say, this is sort of in the broader conversation, you know, that this is really showing that Wells Fargo is one of these banks, you know, never mind too big to fail, it's too big to manage, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I actually don't think this scandal shows that at all. I think the scandal actually shows Wells Fargo is perfectly capable of being managed. Witness the fact that, you know, if they simply had bothered to reduce the sales quota, they probably would have knocked out a huge percentage of this behavior. You know, this didn't show any of that. What this showed is that they didn't want to deal with this, that they wanted to get the increased sales from these these pressurized sales quotas. And, 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 as, and as a result, right, you could just simply say, oh, this is a show a failure of bank regulators. See, CFPB doesn't work. Right. And watch that will be coming. It, it was amazing. Uh, you, you, would, you would hear people like um, John Tester when he was he was giving a very, I think, uh, half hearted <laughs> attack on John Stumpf. And Stumpf would say, well, you know, uh, yes, fifty three hundred people were fired over this. But no, it wasn't a scandal. It was it wasn't a scam. It wasn't an intentional policy or anything. It was just fifty three hundred bad apples. And they were really only one percent of our workforce. And and you, Tester would respond, well, you know, every time you say that you're giving ammunition to the people who want to break up the big banks. Uh, it does seem to me that, that there is I mean, I can see why that is uh, a, an appealing line of, a, of attack. But I mean, how how do you end up with fifty three hundred people getting fired for something wrong and not having senior management being fired at, at the same time? That just seems like a very strange corporate policy. Well, it's 
seems like, you know, just a part of the way the United States is governed these days, right? The same thing happened in the housing crisis. The few people who got prosecuted were like basically, you know, little like schmo, you know, robo-signer types or Mm -hmm. mid-level management. I mean, you didn't see anybody get, you know, in a a real position get penalized for this. I mean, a real senior position, right? They just sort of walked off into the sunset. And I, I think it sort of goes to the sort of fury that you feel out there in the 2016 election, this sense that, you know, the big guys are getting away with it, murder, and the little guys are getting caught on stuff that they're doing really at the behest of the big guys, right? Because, right. again, the scandal doesn't exist without the impossible sales quotas that Wells Fargo was imposing on its staff. You literally could not... Um, I, you know, I, just to backtrack for the listeners, you know, the essentially Wells Fargo had a goal of um, eight. Every customer should be sold eight products, right? Um, financial <laughs> products, as they like to say, right? Yeah. You, you don't think of your credit card as a product, but they do. And then they also had internal sales quotas for their 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 frontline employees. That is your bank teller making between eleven and twelve dollars an hour, right? Yeah. Now, in fact, you really can't sell people on eight financial products. They don't need them. You and then they turned around and set the the, the goals in and of themselves as way too high for almost anyone to meet. But at the same time, when people went in and said, oh, I can't meet this goal, they would be threatened with being fired, with being disciplined, with having to work overtime, and so on and so forth. Wells Fargo, and by the way, Stumpf really sort of claimed at this um, hearing on um, Tuesday that um, even though the CFPB settlement goes back to 2011, he only became aware of the problem when the Los Angeles Times did a long investigation of it into the end of 2013. So he then tried to backtrack a little bit on that, right? right. But they, they had been doing, in fact, trainings for their employees since 2012 to try to get them to not do this. But at the same time, of course, the sales goals remained impossible. So clearly they knew there was a problem, and clearly they did very little to address it. And they and they bragged about it in corporate yeah. filings and in calls with investors that this was a strategy that worked. That their, so they've their broken their fiduciary responsibility on top of everything else because they've lied to investors and said this is part of our bottom line coming up. Right. And what what still hasn't really been figured out here is they you know lied to investors. They were boasting about this. But in fact – they might be in the right in this one tiny spot because, in fact, it probably did boost their legitimate sales as well, right? <laughs> because there is a, so evidence emerging that people would just sort of say, oh, screw it, I'll get this guy off my back. Sure, I'll take the credit card, right? And, and tales are starting to surface of people who, you know, were like, yeah, my Wells Fargo person told me I needed to have six checking accounts and he's my banker, so what the heck, right? <laughs> so, in fact, you know, there probably were increased sales because of this, right? Yeah. You know, it wasn't that every, it wasn't all fraud, right? But at the same time, it was fraud because people didn't need this stuff. And that goes to the whole heart of the banking sales model. And you notice not many people are really talking about that. And there's probably a good reason for that. All banks are playing that game, not just Wells Fargo. It's funny, it's funny to hear you talk about, Zach, the, the whole excuse, well, it was just 1% of our sales force that was doing this. We just come through a week in the presidential election where this sort of analogy was applied to Syrian refugees. The whole, like, there's only oh God, there's no. three poison skittles in the bowl would you eat a handful i mean to me it's what wells fargo is though is it's not a 
poison group of Skittles. It's a poison chalice. This, uh, <laughs> the incentives are all completely wrong. And there's, I, I, like, like you said, like you said, Helene, people are, are making perhaps increased sales goals. There are obviously some people who have taken this incentive and maybe have succeeded in part with it. But it seems like an inhuman demand to put on people uh, and, and then to not be sensitive to the fact that they've made this inhuman demand. This is what has incentivized the criminality in the first place. So this really isn't the fault of the of the 5000 people who are fired, who are really just trying to keep their jobs and do what their bosses were telling them to do. This is really the fault of management. We've seen one of these managers go away with. A uh, 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 hundred million dollars worth of golden parachute. Yeah. Right. And I mean, what's gr- really grotesque about it, and I just can't really harp on this enough, is that, you know, the, uh, Carrie Tolstat, the manager you just mentioned, walked away with 125 million. Stubbs has made over 100 million over the course of this scandal, of the, you know, the years of this scandal. But, you know, there, in the first week after this broke, when Stubbs was giving his initial interviews, he was blaming over and over again these low level 11 and $12 an hour employees. It's like this sort of same thing in our society where we're, you know, it's almost the, you know, the corporate equivalent of, you know, blaming, you know, somebody on welfare for fraud when in fact people can't keep up, right? They need, you know, social services, right? It's the old Reagan welfare queen thing, which turned out to be completely false. It's, you know, they're blaming little small people who are just trying to keep up for what was essentially a scam concocted by themselves because, again, how else was anybody going to keep up. And, and, and it, it made the money. Clear to them. It, it made it made the money. And, and John Stumps, Elizabeth Warren made this point at the hearing, you know, the value of his, I mean, because this scam worked until they got caught, the value of Wells Fargo's stock options for its executives did increase over this period of time. Uh, and I, I think in the list of like, of, of responses, of, of potential responses for what, what could be done here, the weakest one involves clawing back compensation, like not even not even forcing the, you know, John Stump out of a job, not even breaking up his bank, much less sending him to jail, but clawing back some of that compensation. And he said, I, I just I, I want to get your thoughts on this corporate governance question, Helene, because he said he repeatedly at the hearing declined to say whether he did not want to prejudice, quote, prejudice, unquote, the board of directors about what should be done in their independent investigation of 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 the pay for top managers in this case. Stump is both the CEO and the chairman of the board. Have you ever heard a chairman of the board talk like that, saying, oh, I don't want to prejudice anybody about what the board should do? Well, this was, again, the same thing. It's like, you know, who's, you know, who's in charge of this bank, right? Is it the guy earning over $100 million <laughs> from this? Or is it like just some, you know, little banker, you know, in, in a branch in North Dakota somewhere making $11 an hour? It made no sense, and he was called out on it, to be fair. But it was almost absurd. The, the, you know, I think we have this thing in our society where over and over again, um, and I'm, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, people are blamed for not saving enough money, for not putting enough money aside for retirement, for not using their credit cards responsibly. And then, of course, you know, you get somebody from upper management, like Stumpf up in front of the, uh, in front of Congress, and it's like, oh, wait, this chairman of this board? Huh? What? Who, what is this? Oh, wait. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I know I'm the chair, but, you know, they're really independent of me. It, it, it is just so absurd and so sad, and you totally get why people are so angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wells Fargo wagon, the axle is dragging, as always. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's more to the story to come, uh, which we'll bring you. And Helene, we'd love to have you back on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank uh, you for having me on. That's Helene Olin. She is a Slate columnist and the co-author of a very good personal finance book called The Index Card, which you should read. Uh, and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by New Republic columnist and host of the Primary Concerns podcast, Brian Boitler, author and Slate columnist Helene Olin, and Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something that you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.